Looking to learn life lessons without going through the experience? You've come to the right place. Welcome to Hidden Struggles with your host, Lady C. Hey, hey, Lady C, coming back at you from Hidden Struggles. And in this upcoming episode, I am back with Ivy. And this time we're going to be talking about her experience and how she became one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about that and how you got started in this religion? And, you know, just give us the highlights, girl. Just give us the highlights. So basically, I was introduced to Jehovah's Witnesses, obviously through family. Um, My mother got baptized when I was about nine. And then from that point on, we were going to all the meetings and doing all the things. I personally didn't get baptized because I didn't want to be one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Ironically enough, as we talked about in our last video, I had ambitions, ambitions of going to college, yada, yada, yada. And that was my reason. I was like, nope, it's too restrictive. You can't live life. It doesn't leave you with any options. I don't want to do it. But I succumbed. after living a quote-unquote debauched life, right, and came back like the prodigal son. Um, And I didn't get baptized probably until I was like 21. And then from then up until 2020, that was my tenure as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So you 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 gonna tell me you was a prodigal son? So what was it like living at home with your parents? How did you get past all that? I mean, because you know, you know, were you like a teenager in the religion, or you know, what was that like? You know, growing up as a youngster, were you growing up as a youngster in the organization? So I wouldn't use the word difficult. What I would say is that in my experience, it was very preferential. It was isolating. And I didn't feel like I was welcomed. I felt like because I wasn't raised, meaning like I wasn't born into it or introduced to it as a toddler, that everybody, meaning the young people in any of the congregations we went to, they already had their people. They already had their friends. And so that left me trying to find a way in. So when I wasn't successful at doing that, and then I saw kids living double lives, And at the time, even though I wasn't a witness, I still heavily believed in Jehovah or the God concept and him knowing all things. So my position was, if he already knows what I'm thinking and he knows what I'm doing, I might as well just go ahead and do it. So I started hanging out with kids at school because I felt like they were honest about who they were and what they wanted to do. And they weren't, you know, claiming to serve Jehovah on one end, but then they looking like the world on the other end. So. That was my teenage exposure to the organization, in addition to both of my parents getting disfellowshipped. So I got to experience that as well. You know, what it was like to be a disfellowshipped teenager with three younger sisters in the congregation and, and what that was like. So it wasn't easy. Um, and actually, I their activities was a detraction for me to join. Okay. So and when listening to what you're saying, you're like, I was the prodigal son coming back. I, I really feel like because the religion was so strict, it seems like people think that they're doing so bad. But when you really look at it, what you were doing probably was just what normal kids did anyway. 
This is correct. This is absolutely right. So I wanted, again, to go to college. I wanted to be able to go out and, you know, go to parties, which ironically enough, I would do from time to time. And I would see like pioneers at these nightclubs. (laughs) So, you know, it kind of made me think like, yeah, I don't want to do this. Like, you're not supposed to be here. Like, why am I seeing you at this nightclub? Like, why do I see you on first Fridays at the bar? Like, (laughs) what's happening? So yeah, I didn't want to do that. So I was doing normal stuff. Of course, I had a boyfriend. I wasn't like I was out here, for lack of a better word, like whoring around, right? So um, after that, I had an apartment that was my own. I had a job. Um, You know, I might have did some recreational things that, you know, the witnesses would have frowned upon. But that's what made me the prodigal son because I was not pretty much living that square boxed in life. So, you know, anything outside of that is worldly (laughs) revelries, drunken bouts, all the things. Right. But when you are 17, 18, 19, 20, those things are not uncommon. They're not. It's a part of the exploration process for you to figure out who it is and what you want to do. It teaches you your limits. It can teach you what to do, what not to do. There's powerful lessons on um, loyalty and betrayal. Like these are all natural human interactions that you need to establish your personality and to be able to navigate multiple situations. So I guess in hindsight or thinking about it now, no, I wasn't really the prodigal son. But of course, coming back, that's what they call you. You know, if you were once associated with it and you're a young person and you come back, the congregation's like, yay, you know, you're the prodigal son. They pump your head up and they're like, we're welcome to have you and yada, yada. So that's just how that went. I think it's interesting how you talked about not fitting in with these kids and how when you are a Jehovah's Witness, it's like this is the only people that they present to you that's that you're supposed to want to be around or, you know, should be around. And then here you are feeling like this. And I, I bet you there's a lot of other people that feel the same way. You know, how, how did your parents, did you ever talk about that? To I people? did. <laughs> I did, actually. I remember having a conversation with them probably when I was in like eighth grade, maybe becoming a freshman, because I didn't want to be an unbaptized publisher anymore. And they didn't know how to take that. So I literally sat down with my parents and I was like, I don't want to be an unbaptized publisher. And they're like, well, why? And I'm like, because I'm I'm doing things at school. I'm living my life. And I don't want to knock on none of these kids doors in my territory because I felt like personally that would be me bringing reproach on Jehovah. Right. So I figured I would be straightforward with my parents, let them know where I was at and what I wanted to do. And they couldn't believe it. They were st- they were stunned and they were like, don't you want to live? Don't you want everlasting life? And this and that. I said, well, when I'm dead, I'm just dead. It's not like I'm going to know. So why don't I just live my life now? And then when I die, I just die. Like you're presenting me with an option that's really not frightening because you're saying I'm going to be unconscious. The dead know nothing at all. So I'm like, what do you mean? When I die, I just die. Why, why should I be afraid to live my life? thinking about the possibility of something happening after death. So yeah, I was pretty, pretty set in my ways at 14. Like, no, this is not what I wanted to do. So my parents had a really interesting reaction to that. But lo and behold, within like t- a year or two, my, my father gets this fellowship and close after about six months, nine months or whatever, my mom gets this fellowship. <laughs> so that left me taking all of my younger sisters to the, to the, to the meetings and stuff like that. So it was an interesting oh my reaction goodness. that they had. Yeah. You're kidding me. Now we talked before about this and 
you had mentioned this became your your new role. And yes. this is at the same time that you're saying, I don't want this responsibility as a unbaptized publisher. So what happened? How did you, you know, end up in this role? What did you do with your siblings? I literally would get them ready. So mind you, at this point, I'm 16 because I'm driving. At minimum, I'm 16. Um, and I'm taking my 11-year-old sister and my two, maybe four-year-old twin sisters to the meetings. Like I remember because they were in car seats still. So they couldn't have been any older than maybe two years of age. And I literally would get them ready. We would load up in our van. I would drive them to the Thursday night meetings. We would drive to the book studies. You know, I would try to take my sister out in service with me, the 11 year old, tried to make arrangements with different ones in the congregation to try to still stay active and not to be on the fringes of the congregation. And it was a real, it was really hard for me as a teenager trying to, you know, advocate for the support that we needed because, you know, when you're in a disfellowship household, that's what it becomes, a disfellowshipped household. It's not just like, oh, their mother or their father, their sister or their brother is disfellowshipped. No, the entire home is now disfellowshipped and marked as bad association or somebody you want to kind of stay leery of. So that was really, really hard too. navigating that and knowing that I did not have the support. That added to me not wanting to be a witness, to be quite frank, is the, the lack of love that was shown in that consideration to minor children. And that happened all the time. And uh, how long did you fulfill this role in this capacity? At least. if And my memory is not like precise because this was all happening at a very, like it just happened rapidly, right? One parent's fellowship, another one. I'm in high school. I'm trying to figure myself out, trying to, you know, get, I was a straight A student. Now I have this responsibility of taking on these three younger sisters, which is on top of all my roles already as the eldest. So it, it was really hard um, going through all that. And it probably, I would say, safe bet is it lasts at least a year, which okay. would probably be the length of time that my mom was disfellowshipped. So I believe when she got reinstated, she started to resume, you know, those responsibilities of taking us and, you know, making sure that we were compliant or, you know, in line with what the congregation wanted. Okay. Now you're still at this time when your mother gets reinstated. Are you now, now that you don't have to do the, the taking your siblings to the kingdom hall, are you still attending yourself? Oh yeah. You know how that goes. If you in my household, you going to go to the meetings. You, you're going out in service. You are going to worship Jehovah, the whole Joshua in my house. And then I come from an old school family with an old school parents. Like, no, she was my, they were not having it. So okay. even when I returned and I moved back home from having like exited college and my own apartment and stuff, that was the same, the same thing. Like you're going to go to the meetings at minimum on Sundays. Like you cannot stay here or move back in if you're not going to the meetings. Okay. So then what brought you back? What, what made you want to get baptized? Because I'm assuming that when you left home and you were doing all these, you know, taking your siblings to the kingdom hall, you were not baptized at that time. So what brought you back into the fold to go ahead and get baptized? Well, for me, it was a tragedy, right? Which is not uncommon. It was 9-11. And I remember being out with some friends of mine and where I'm at their house and the news is on and it's the towers. And I'm like, Holy smokes. This is what the witnesses have been talking about. I'm thinking we're about to enter the great tribulation. And here I am about to get trapped 
on the outside of the arc. Like I'm, I'm not going to make it. So when that happened, I was like, oh, I need to get back to the Kingdom Hall. I should start going again. And that's when I went to my parents to move back in. And they told me, you know, that I had to go to the meetings on Sundays and that I should seriously consider a Bible study. Um, as a matter of fact, I, when I moved back in and I had this conversation with my parents, I still was like, Ugh, I don't want to go. Like, it's boring. We talk about the same stuff all over again. I don't see how this is going to help me like in the real world. And when I voiced that concern to my parents, I remember my father saying, he said, pimps and hoes go to church on Sunday. What's your excuse? And I was like, I am neither of those. So I guess I'll be going to the Kingdom Hall on Sunday. You know, it it, it made an impression on me. So I started going to the meetings on Sunday. I was still going out to the club and stuff on Saturday nights. Um, And then one time I went to the meeting and there was a really good speaker that they had brought in from Toledo, Ohio. Phenomenal speaker. Like, you know, we talked about in one of our previous episodes and it really, it was like a gut punch where I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm hurting Jehovah's heart and how could I? And, you know, so from there, I kind of started weeding through my contacts and disconnecting from all of my friends and stuff like that. And then eventually, you know, accepted a study from a sister in my congregation at the time who I felt was a safe space. She was new. She had just come from missionary service, you know, so she was a fresh face and perspective that I could respect after going through the lack of love, you know, when my parents got disfellowshipped, I didn't trust any any of those existing members who pretty much dissed us <laughs> at a time of need. So I was able to do that with somebody new. But sh- long story short, it was 9-11. Amazing. So, you know, it's like the fear factor. Oh, absolutely. It was fear. My mind immediately went to the Great Tribulation and Armageddon and incurring Jehovah's wrath and all of that jazz. And then with some 20 something years later, we've got other things that people are now saying that is bringing about Armageddon, like the, the different wars with the Ukraine and now Israel and just everything is the just pandemic, yeah, the pandemic, like the political arena, our previous presidents, <laughs> all the announcement everything. of the king of the north and the south, like, oh, they put all the puzzle pieces together. But now what? Yeah, because I mean, when you think about when we were ra- when I was raised in. It would not be like every day, you know, that you would be getting these like messages that would be bringing people into the organization or not. And it would be like maybe five or six years it took place before like different things happen. But it seems like in this last year, everything is going to, as it would call it, hell in the handbasket, right? (laughs) Right, right. um, So now when you think about how you came into the organization what woke you up? I mean, you know, you you came in because of 9-11 then all of a sudden something happens. What, what jolts you to your senses to say something's not right? Well, that happens progressively throughout the course of my 17 years of marriage. So I would have to say the last few years of the marriage is when I started to really question whether or not the religion was working. And I say that because I was going through a lot. And I was supplicating a lot and I was beseeching the elders a lot and I wasn't getting anywhere. And so once I became, you know, got disfellowshipped, I still reached out to try to get support because I have a minor child and I was turned away multiple times. And that really hurt me, actually. It was 
it was devastating. I'm not even going to say, oh, it hurt. It was devastating. And then from there, even though I still wasn't open to reading the reviews um, on Jehovah's Witnesses, I still had like this slight, you know, gnawing feeling or curiosity that maybe something has been misconstrued. Maybe there's been a little bit of human influence, but I didn't know how far to take it because my initial thought is bringing all of my thoughts, making them a slave to Christ, right? And the guessing and the wanting to know more or the exploring, right, is apostate leanings. So I always denied my consciousness throughout this process. And then as I started to read the reviews, I started to be like, I always thought that. Or yeah, when I was at the assembly in the back of my mind, I thought, hmm, that doesn't seem fair, you know? So at that time, probably about nine months into my disfellowshipping is when I start what I call reading the reviews and being open to more critical thinking or regaining my autonomy when it comes to to my thoughts. And then it just briefly started. Of course, the child sex abuse was one of the first things that I became aware of. And for me as a mother, and all, you know, that was a no-go for me. And so progressively after that, then it got into the shunning, obviously, because I'm disfellowshipped. And literally, I was completely ghosted. <laughs> like, no one kept in touch with me, not even the elders, you know. So it's been three years that they still haven't checked up on me, which is fine, because obviously they didn't like or care or love me like they said they did. But um, that's kind of what woke me up is, again, the lack of love. And then the fact that they were covering up so many hurtful things, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't accept that. You said that both you and your husband were Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes. Okay. And so remember how we talked uh, before and we talked about how whenever you're not having a good marriage, the Jehovah's Witnesses always or the elders always will blame the wife. And I've talked to a lot of women who left the religion and they were always asking them, are you cooking, cleaning and doing all your wifely duties and things like that? And they wanted to blame you if you were having a bad marriage or not. And so and I, and I find that a lot of women, when they're in that situation, they see the double um, standards or they see how it's lopsided and they don't really take you into consideration because it's always the woman is wrong. And that's how people wake up. So interestingly enough, I was a very dutiful wife, even when I didn't agree. And so my marriage being bad, horrible, terrible, um, was not the thing that necessarily woke me up because throughout that 17 years, probably about two thirds of it, I really dug my heels in deep when it came to what a Christian wife was and what a Christian wife should be. My challenge, which I know we'll get into later in regards to the marriage, was not having a head that was setting an example that I can feel comfortable and secure with for our success as a couple in the congregation. So that was just an added frustration to everything else that I was going through and dealing with. And then you add on the lack of support of the congregation that, like I said, it compounded issues for me. Things that I feel you can't come back from personally, right? So if you're my friend, it's like if you come to me and you have this life altering situation that you're going through and you ask me for some type of help, there may be some things that I can't do, but I'm I'm for damn sure going to do what I can, 
right? You don't expect to come to a friend, a confidant, or even your your therapist, right? Your doctor. And for you to express your challenges and concerns, your your bruises and bumps and all this other stuff. And then just for them to be like, well, are you reading your Bible? Are you doing your family worship? You know, your hours look good. Are you praying to Jehovah? Maybe you want to try this form of supplication. Do you want to research David? Are you looking at like Daniel? Like, okay, I know all those people. What about Job? Like, okay, I know I need the patience of Job, but at this point I'm ready to strangle Job. So I don't have to have any of his patience because obviously his patience got him nowhere but dead. You know what I mean? Like I'm tired of waiting. I don't want to hear about Joseph and how all the things that he went through. Okay, that's great. But I bet you Joseph would not have gone through that if he had modern technology and an attorney. So stop, you know, giving me these um, archaic references and trying to make them fit in everyday life. I don't recall Joseph having to pay rent. I don't recall Joseph having to deal with inflation. I don't, I don't recall, Joseph had to deal with some jealousy and some hate. And that, like they say, if you ain't got no haters, you ain't popping. So I don't want to hear any of those things, but that was all they could offer me. Yep. All they would offer me. Cause it wasn't like any of the elders then took a personal special interest in me and my family to help us with that situation or to be creative in how they could have shepherded. I mean, because it is a voluntary position. It's not like if you don't do something, you're actually going to get in trouble. We know that from the CSA cover-up. So mm-hmm. I feel like they could have done more, but they didn't. And uh, we'll get into more detail about some of the specific communications I had with the different congregation elders and even a circuit overseer that that led to this questioning and this waking up. Right. Now, when you when you were married for 17 years, did, did, did you and your husband have children together? Yes, we have a daughter. OK, so I just want you to just tell that to my audience so that, you know, we get ready to do and kind of talk about that. Then we can, yeah. you know, really share your your experience, because there's a lot of people that I remember when we first left and there was this brother from Canada that was trying to reach us and wanted us to give some help with a daughter that he had, that he had left the organization and uh, he was having some problems with his ex-wife. And uh, it was about, they were having issues with the blood issue and she didn't want to give the, the daughter blood and it was just a hot mess. So, you know, the spouse that leaves the religion, they're looked at as being the bad person because they left the religion. So of course, you know, we're going to talk about your experience in the next video. So, so Miss Ivy, I appreciate you sharing your experience about how you came to be one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about your experience and what it's like to be a, you know, a mother. And you're looked at as being the bad parent because you left the watchtower. Yeah, I look for I look forward to that discussion about, you know, parental alienation. Um, Yes. And just for the audience to know, it's not just something that parents experience, grandparents experience it too. So we'll dev- I look forward to sharing what I've learned throughout that journey of trying to fight back for my rights as a parent. Okay. Parent alienation coming up in the next video. All right. Thank you all for being in our audience and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to Hidden Struggles with your host, Lady C. This program was sponsored by Critical Thinkers, online at hiddenstruggle.com. Feel free to send an email to info at hiddenstruggle.com, and we'll catch you next time on Hidden Struggles. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of critical thinkers.